My name is Nancy Solomon. I work at WNYC. I have a 20-year-old son as, who's the subject of this conversation. In this episode, we're going to look at one way families are trying to protect their kids from entering the justice system. Families who have a lot more resources than the ones we've profiled so far. But I'm not a parent, and I can only imagine how terrifying it must be to look at your kid and think, wow, he is sliding out of control. Or worse, to be unsure, to wonder, is this just a teen thing, or is something irreparable about to happen? So I asked Nancy to help me understand when she had that moment of desperation with her own son. Um, so uh, this starts in high school, and he starts, um, I don't know whether it starts with him smoking pot or whether it just starts with him flailing academically in high school. Either way, it wasn't just about a kid getting stoned behind the house too much. He was flat out not going to school. Nancy had been patient, tried to let him find his way, but she felt like time was running out. She let him drop out of public school, and she found him a great private boarding school. And I got him in, and he got himself in. He wrote himself an essay. He went on the trip up there to see the place. Things were really looking a lot better. I was so relieved. For a few months. And then... In uh, early May, he got expelled. What were you thinking at that point? I was thinking I needed some kind of therapeutic intervention. She'd actually already sent him to a specialist, somebody who focused on adolescent boys. I had just really gotten the report from this psychologist right about the time that he got expelled. Yeah. What did the report say? You know, it was kind of complicated, but it was basically that he was had uh, low-grade depression. And the psychologist's concern was is that with the low-grade depression and the interest in drugs when he discovered... Uh, an opioid, he was going to be all in. And oh, so, wait a minute. That's yeah. that's a big step there. So. Yeah. So that was scary, like, uh, to hear from somebody, like, he is at risk of a serious drug problem if you let things go. That was it. She started thinking about a crazy idea that everyone had been pushing, friends, family, the therapist, everybody. So wilderness therapy is this thing where... Um, so these are places, obviously, in the wilderness. They're therapeutic, but they're basically like uh, super tough love. You're going to be out in the wilderness, and you're going to backpack and camp in the rough for weeks and weeks until you find your own internal motivation to put your life together. Up until now, Nancy had totally rejected this idea. But now, like, now I'm at a point where when he comes back from his boarding school, he is 17 years old and six weeks away from his 18th birthday. And now I'm getting, you know, advice that when he turns 18, I lose all power to send him anywhere mm -hmm. without his agreement. A ticking clock. She's running out of time. So, so I, I gather you decided to do it. Yeah. So I decided to do it, and um, yeah, it was it was a horrible night, horrible night. I didn't sleep, and I, it was just and the look on his face. I mean, I betrayed him. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm Kai Wright. This is Caught, and in this episode, we explore a path that runs parallel to the juvenile justice system for parents who can afford it. 
there's an entire private industry that claims to have figured out how to help troubled teens. WNYC reporter Sophia Palizakar travels into the private, pricey world of wilderness therapy. The first step is often the most challenging. Once a parent has decided it's time to send a kid away, they have to figure out how to send them. Because if it's gotten to this point, a parent's essentially lost all control. It's almost 2 o'clock now. Uh, the pickup is scheduled for 3. So they'll call in someone like Tamarcus. In this industry, Tamarcus is known as a transporter. He gets a kid from a home to a program. Because this generally happens in the middle of the night and without warning, some kids call this getting gooned or getting kidnapped. 20, 30 minutes out, we'll just give the family a call and, you know, what I've known is, is that uh, it's been really helpful for parents to have that final, you know, 30 minutes to emotionally to get themselves together. Yeah, hey, how, how are you doing this morning? Still hanging in there, right? It's 3 a.m. Tamarcus is coordinating the pickup of a young girl on the East Coast. Okay, well, uh, just want to let you know we're in the neighborhood of... Whenever you guys are ready for us to come, we can come. Uh, do you guys have any last minute questions? He's already driven four hours today from his home in North Carolina, and he won't be home for another 24. Long day. Long yeah. day, yeah. He actually works full-time, checking in on foster kids for a placement agency. This is just his side gig. Lots of people in transporting our law enforcement or have worked at programs before. They find these jobs by word of mouth. So I guess we'll go ahead and head on over, okay? So we're close to the home. We don't ever really want to, you know, initially drive by the home just because you never know who's up and who's, uh, you know, in the yard or who's looking out of windows. We have uh, T-shirts and uh, pullovers that we have to put on that has our uh, company logo on it just to kind of let individuals know that, you know, um, that we're, we belong here. It's a two-person job. So once he and his female partner get inside, they'll budget about an hour. The parents make sure there's nothing dangerous in the house, take away phones, and wake up the kid and tell them where they're going. Then they get out of the way. You, you, you think about all of the scenarios that could potentially happen. You know, um, could, this, could this potentially be a, a scary situation for adolescent? Yes. He says it mostly goes well, but sometimes the kid really resists. Kids will say they're going to go, and they get to the door, the front door where we're going to exit, and there's a lot of uh, resistance and such as them, like, you know, holding poles or holding other doors or grabbing something um, at last minute. You know, we don't restrain kids or anything of that nature. We, we, we just assist the kids. An assist means gripping a kid's upper arm or locking arms with them to keep them from running. Tamarcus says he doesn't carry handcuffs, but there are transporters who definitely do. We try to, um, you know, select music that the kid likes because it kind of keeps them calm and well, they've been stripped of everything. Once a kid is in the car, they'll head straight for the airport, get through TSA, and board a plane. Wilderness programs aren't casual camping trips. They're meant to break kids down and rebuild them. 
these programs offer the wilderness as a solution to all kinds of issues. Screen addiction. There is no running water, no electricity. The only thing that glows in the dark, a campfire. Substance abuse. In the 12 steps, with a 16 to 21 day therapeutic expedition. Anxiety and pretty much anything else. The wilderness is our catalyst. We reveal potential, inspire hope, and save lives. And we believe it, and we live it. The catch is, it can cost over $500 a day, mostly out of pocket. But people are paying. A recent economic impact study found that programs like these are helping to bring in over $400 million to the state of Utah, a hub for this industry. For every kid that comes into the state of Utah, almost one job is created. That blew my mind. Jenny Wilder runs an online directory of these programs. She found that behavioral health care, as she calls it, is bringing in about five times what Sundance Film Festival brings into Utah. And she says more and more parents want this alternative kind of intervention. It's just totally different than dragging little Joey or Jane to the family therapy. But this idea, it isn't actually new. Think about Walden Pond. A lake is a landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is Earth's eye, looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. Remember Thoreau's philosophy of self-reliance, struggling to find yourself while alone in the elements? This is a deeply American idea that became an organized movement way back in the 1880s. Imagine it's post-Civil War. America's booming. And if you're a wealthy industrialist, you might send your lazy 15-year-old son to a place like Camp Chocorua in New Hampshire. They had to paddle out in canoes, and they cooked over a fire. And a lot of people, educators at the time, said, oh, how can you do that to these kids? That is so harsh. That's so tough. Will White wrote a book on the history of wilderness therapy. He says this camp was one of the first to start a tradition of teaching elite American boys the value of work and independence. And then, in the early 20th century, we get the Boy Scouts. They taught young boys outdoor skills like fire building and knots. And they adopted and fetishized Native American traditions. The chief has ordered that you be taken into the woods where you will remain alone throughout the night. In the 1960s, we get outward bound. The individual, like the tide itself, rises to his full height. Founder Kurt Hahn thought outdoor challenges were the way to build character. Then we see a lot of programs popping up in the 1970s and 1980s that were largely unregulated, including a program called Vision Quest. Vision Quest took adjudicated kids thousands of miles across the country in covered wagons and camped in teepees. These youngsters have been in trouble with the law many times. Standard treatments haven't worked. The road this wagon train travels is the one that can lead to home. Unfortunately, Vision Quest has been criticized for its boot camp-like methods and investigated in federal court after reports of child abuse and the death of a kid in their program. This is when the tough love model of the late 80s took hold. And these were the first programs that admitted kids who were taken against their will. Some used abusive methods, resulting in injuries and even deaths, which spurred a congressional hearing in 2007. In the guise of behavior modification, youth are being deprived of food, sleep, and shelter. 
They are forced to endure stress positions. Today, states like Utah have established licensing rules to prevent abuse. Programs have lowered the kid-to-staff ratio and implemented more training. Though, there's still no federal oversight, and state regulations vary. So, choosing a wilderness program means relinquishing control of your child. And that starts with the transport, which brings us back to Tamarcus. Yeah, absolutely. It was a tight window, but we made it, yes. When he has a chance, he calls me from the airport. The youth kind of became very emotional. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of holding on to the the mother. Um, But over the course of 30 minutes, you know, she was able to kind of calm down and have a civil conversation. She's now off in a program out west without access to any kind of electronics. So we can't ask her how it went. Instead, meet James. So what I remember is, you know, coming to and these two guys telling me to get dressed. Seven years ago, he was woken up in the middle of the night in Manhattan with no idea what was in store for him. He had fallen asleep while watching TV, and now all he knew was he had to go with these men. So he put on a blazer and slacks. He thought maybe that would make his transporters look like his bodyguards. Then they drove to JFK and got on a plane. The guy who was with me, he was like a police officer. So he was like doing some work on his computer, as I remember. This is just like another day for him. Like he's done this a million times. And for me, it's like, you know, surreal. Um, I can't believe this is happening. James is a pretty quiet guy, but he's the most quiet when he recounts this experience. The plane he got on when he was 16 years old, it was headed for Utah. They told me that you can get out of there in a couple weeks, you know, three weeks. And that was a lie. Um, and I was there for two and a half months. And how he ended up there started on a street corner not far from Central Park. My old stomping ground. Um, yeah. He shows me his old school where he went from kindergarten all the way up until 10th grade. It's this old building, a private school, and they introduced him to his passion, which is fencing, when he was six years old. It's what he did every night and every weekend, and he was actually top 10 in the country back in the day. He was very active. He was very curious. Um, He was always engaged. Um, He was a happy, happy kid. Bonnie, his mom, she's petite, very put together. She started to look for help for James when he was eight, just after his dad died of cancer. I wanted him to have someone to talk to and to vent to. And so I did that way back then. And I was told, he's, you know, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. I didn't know that he was. It's at around the same time that James started to struggle with reading. So that set this all rolling. She took him to the pediatrician and then to a psychiatrist. They diagnosed him with an attention disorder and put him on medication, which seemed to help. He also ended up getting special one-on-one tutoring at school. For a while, James was pretty focused on school and on fencing. But then in middle school, he got distracted. Eighth grade was like going to hookah bars, going to bars, um, going to like high school parties. He started smoking weed and cigarettes. He also got interested in girls. 
and didn't want to be training all the time, especially on Friday nights. And then like ninth grade was, everyone was clubbing and it was like very ridiculous. And like, so that was the difference of like, the social scene was a big part of that kind of realm of like downtown, of the meatpacking and Soho and all that kind of stuff. He felt like the big issue for him was that his friends had a lot more money than he did. He was well off, but he says he couldn't drop thousands of dollars in one night or wear Gucci all the time, like they could. And then everyone started to do more expensive drugs like cocaine. So James found a way to keep up. It started with money from my mother. Like I remember my friend and I, we were like looking through my mom's stuff and we found a bunch of cash and like we thought it, we like hit the jackpot. How much, do you remember how much cash it actually was? Like $1,500, yeah, it was like a lot of cash. We left some of it there though. And then we blamed it on the cleaning lady, my cleaning lady at the time, or I did. Um, and you know, I said I was gonna like, you know, space it out within like two weeks, which I thought was like a long time. And it ended up being like two days. In high school, he graduated to pawning his mom's jewelry, then stealing laptops from school. Meanwhile, Bonnie started to get suspicious. She took James to see a social worker. He didn't seem to mind talking about himself for 45 minutes. But beyond that, he just wouldn't listen to her. He'd leave the house at 3 or 4 a.m. and cut school. Bonnie found burn marks in his bathroom sink. I remember buying drug kits and having one of my brothers come over here and just pick him up and take him in his bedroom and making him do the pee test and having a good talk with him. I thought that that would scare him a lot. It didn't. And things were building. James was shoplifting clothes, electronics, groceries. But when the stores or the cops did catch him, they would often let him go, as long as he gave the stuff back. I kind of just thought, like, the worst thing that can happen is, like, you know, I could just move on from all this stuff, and, like, none of this stuff could haunt me, you know, down the line. But as he entered his sophomore year, Bonnie was crashing. She was constantly worried. I didn't have a relationship with him. It was fear-based. Um, I was terrified. She didn't know where he was, and when he was home, he'd get angry, yell at her. And he even threw a chair once. And when you're terrified of someone and angry with them, there's, there's no room for conversation. Because every day was something else. And every day I'd say, well, it all happened. Nothing more can happen. And something would happen. That was so different from anything I experienced the day before, the week before. And in winter, things started to escalate. It looked like James was going to get expelled. One Friday, she says the school called her. With the ultimatum, you know, these are your choices. We will not invite James back next year unless this and this happens. And, and Bonnie herself had hit a breaking point. One morning I left late for work, and he was across the street on his way home. He was cutting school. He didn't anticipate me leaving late. And he was on his way home, and I screamed out his name. And here I am with, you know, my laptop in one hand, my purse in one hand, and 
with heels on and I'm running down the street after him, screaming his name, like a crazy lady. And for me, that was a moment that I realized couldn't happen again. By Monday, just three days after that phone call from the school, James would be gone. Up next, we'll find out just exactly what James experiences in Utah. When we left, Bonnie had reached a point of no return with her son, and she had finally taken action. In the room where he grew up, James shows me his bookshelf, crammed with Harry Potter and Lemony Snicket. So this is like dating back to when I was there, all of this. Then he pulls out a thick black binder. (laughs) The pages literally have dirt stains on them. Yeah, so that's uh, dating back from the desert. It's filled with worksheets and letters. Getting picked up in the middle of the night, that was just the beginning. After touching down in Salt Lake City, James was driven several hours away to Duchesne, where he was processed. Yeah, so I got, like, gear, like, bright orange T-shirts, bright red T-shirts, like, long johns and, you know, like, a yellow rain jacket and stuff, uh, orange uh, down jackets, like, stuff they could see me in, you know, if I run away. Um, I had to get blood work done, you know, I had to, like, strip down and then, like, do a squat kind of deal to make sure that I wasn't, like, hiding any drugs or anything like that. The first thing he had to do, he was told, was to write his life story. He got two Gatorades, which it turns out would be a small luxury, and he slept under a tarp. For a New York City kid, this was a whole other world. That first morning, and there was, like, snow on the ground, and I was like, where am I? And I pinched myself again, you know, thinking, is this real? And Utah desert weather is changing by the minute. So it was very different than anything I'd ever experienced. It really breaks you down. This breaking down is a part of most wilderness programs. Generally, everything is taken away from you, and you can't eat a hot meal until you can make a fire without matches. For the first few days, you can't even talk to anybody except for staff and a peer mentor. At first, James was very unhappy. He even lied to his therapist and said his girlfriend was having an abortion in hopes that that would be enough reason to fly him home. But that didn't work, and he was still stuck in Utah. So when did you kind of settle in? I would say, I mean, settle in. It's hard to settle in in a wilderness program. Um, I don't think you're really supposed to, actually. Um, When I, like, gave up trying to resist constantly was... Probably a month and a half in. Back in New York, Bonnie was relieved. She knew James was safe and away from trouble. She wrote him letters, finally able to confront him. Dear James, I want you to know that I love you very much. It is possible for me to love you and not like or approve of your behavior. I could not continue watching you make decisions. The daily routine of wilderness was pretty simple. We'd wake up, you know, they'd say, wake up, like, good morning, G7. And, like, then we'd all wake up. The shoes would be dispersed to us since, like, they would take our shoes at night. 
um, so we wouldn't run away. They'd make breakfast, they'd hike. Kids would call groups when they wanted to talk about an issue they were having. They'd see their therapist once a week. They learned how to bust a fire by using two pieces of wood and a bow you'd rub together to get an ember. That was James's least favorite activity. Eating was his favorite, especially refried beans and rice. In the water, we would sometimes put a scoop of orange Gatorade powder and it would give it like a little tangy flavor. It was actually pretty good. Um, these like weird things that you learn in wilderness. If you refused to hike, the group didn't hike. And that meant you might stay there longer because there's no end date for this program. The counselors decide when you're ready to graduate. And that was like the whole big thing. And that's like, you, like you're already here and you don't want to be here. So for you to have to stay here for even longer and the more defiant you are, the longer you're going to stay. It's just the truth. And the truth is, James got pretty used to it. It was just so different than the city and like peaceful. And um, it was always interesting to like come across people who are either cutting wood or they're on you know, ATVs or RVs or whatever it was. And they were just like living their life. And like, here we are, like a bunch of, you know, kidnapped kids, um, <laughs> you know, away for the summer, um, forcefully. Then one day, about three months later, the counselors told James, get ready, you'll be leaving. When Bonnie got the call, that James was going to graduate, she flew out to Utah to see him for the first time. The program set up kind of a ceremony. The parents were blindfolded. The kids made wolf calls. And I remember removing my blindfold and seeing James in front of me. And he had made a leather pouch for me. And just crying and holding on to him. When I saw him, his hair... I never knew he had curly hair. <laughs> he had, had a haircut in three months. And it was all curly and long. And even though, you know, I always say to people, you smell them before you see them <laughs> you know, in the wilderness. But he looked so healthy. And he looked so happy that it, it, was, it was like a billion dollars to me. So that was seven years ago. James is positive wilderness helped him. He's been sober since then, and now he's actually working on a master's in psychology. He's grown up. I knew that people were asking, you know, like were reaching out their hand, but like I was not willing to take any of their help. So life is different to say the least. But I have talked to other kids who have had mixed experiences. Some tried to run away, some felt misled or betrayed. Others are still angry with their parents. For some, it leaves a lasting feeling of powerlessness. It was, it was, uh, it was really rough being in the, in the wilderness. For Noah, who went to Utah in 2009, he says sometimes the program made him feel like a dog. You, you, you kind of lose all your rights, and you're like, you don't really feel like a person, you feel like, a, like an object, like your kind of property. At that point, and you just, you just kind of want to get away. You want to, you know, be free again. He did try to run away, actually. Made it for four days before getting caught. Noah says it's hard to talk about his experience because his friends just don't get it. And his parents don't want to talk about it. But he wants to because 
it's still with him. When I go to sleep still, um, I, I shake. I shake myself awake a few times. I, it's like a, it's a weird twitch that I still do today. Um, it's because, you know, you, you can only sleep during the designated sleep time or sleep hours. So, if you know, if you were sleeping other than then, you could get in trouble. So every night when I go to sleep, um, I twitch a few times and I, I, it scares my girlfriend. Scientific research on whether wilderness is effective is not quite there yet. Mental health professionals point out a lack of randomized, controlled studies, and that studies are often sponsored by the industry itself. And parents are suing insurance companies to try to get them to pay for these programs because they usually don't cover them. And without insurance, the price tag is steep. Kids mostly don't just go to wilderness programs and then come home. They almost always do a stint in a residential program afterwards for at least nine months. Bonnie paid nearly $135,000 for James's treatment, including time at a boarding school. She used her full arsenal of resources. She borrowed money from family members. She used up James's college fund and even got a lawyer to get some funding from the public school system. Other families I've spoken to have spent much more. They've had to mortgage their homes or take out loans. Wilderness costs on average $513 a day, and boarding schools can cost as much as $10,000 a month. By comparison, the average cost of detaining a kid in juvie is $407 a day. So there's a parallel private alternative, which is actually a growing industry for some kids who make bad decisions, where they might get support and maybe a chance to move on with their lives. Sometimes even probation officers suggest to parents to look into private options. And in some cases, judges will okay programs like wilderness therapy in lieu of detention. But if you can't afford it, there aren't a lot of other options. Next time, why New York City is talking about abolishing the juvenile justice system for girls altogether. I've been through things. I just want attention. I just want somebody to love me. Like, I don't care if it's, like, for a second. That's basically, yeah. That's next on Caught. Caught is a production of WNYC Studios and the narrative unit of WNYC News. This episode was reported by Sophia Paliza Carr with reporting assistance from Tim Peterson. Dwayne Betts is a consultant on the podcast. Special thanks to our colleague Jim O'Grady for being quite thorough. Casey Means is our technical director, and Hannes Brown is our composer. Students Taja Graves-Parker, Alberto Lugo, and Sean Gary from Building Beats provided additional music. Our team of talented producers includes Rebecca Carroll, Jessica Miller, and Courtney Stein. Michelle Harris is our fact checker. Kari Pitkin is our senior producer. Karen Froman is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is vice president of news for WNYC. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Caught is supported in part by the Ann Levy Fund, the Margaret Newbart Foundation, the John and Gwynne Smart Family Foundation, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. <laughs> <laughs>